Thanks for joining us uh, this morning in our worship of our great God and King, Jesus Christ. We are very much looking forward to our time in the Scriptures uh, today. Just to kind of give you some context, uh, we've been studying in the book of Romans for quite a while now, and uh, I shared last week that we're going to take a two-week break as this week we consider the cross of our Savior, and next Sunday we consider His resurrection. Um, Typically, this time of year, we have a uh, Good Friday service at the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church, and due to COVID and all the things going on with that, they are not having an open service like they have had in the past. So um, we're going to have Good Friday this morning, Um, and so uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of our Lord, and I say the gospel accounts, uh, it's going to be a little different this morning. Uh, because we're going to look at what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have to say about the cross. And some of you are already saying, no way we're getting through all that. And that's okay. I have great faith. And I just uh, I, I trust that God will bless our time. I, w- I want to look at um, the last song that we sang. Jared, I'll control it. Uh, the last verse uh, we sang, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. As we look at this special moment in time, the cross really is the centerpiece of human history. I pray that we see it in a fresh way, uh, in a a way that may not new in the sense of, oh my, I've never heard these things, but in a fresh way that we would again be reminded of the love of Jesus. The love that He has for us. And as a response, that we would walk day to day in the shadow of the cross. Because it's really in the cross that we we find our redemption. It's in nothing else. Without a cross, there is no Easter Sunday. There is no resurrection. There is no new life, we are still dead in our trespasses. And so let's pray and ask God to open our hearts to His Word. Father, again, we thank You for the great love that You have for us and for the opportunity we have to be here together as Your family. Father, we pray that as we open Your Word, that Your Spirit would guide us and teach us And that we would see Your Son, our Savior, Jesus, very clearly lifted up, lifted on the cross for the sins of mankind. Our sins. Our fallenness. And that we would see the depth of His love work in our hearts Shake us out of the complacency of what happens this season as we consider again Your grace and mercy. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how You speak to us. We thank You, God, that You are always with us. We pray that You would be glorified. We'll give You the praise in Your Son's name. Amen.
the cross, the cruel instrument of death that the Romans had perfected, is, as I said, the centerpiece of all human history. For us, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Church, it is entirely appropriate for us to consider the moments that took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ went to Calvary for our sins. It's not something that we do just to inaugurate us into the Christian faith. It's not something that we listen to to come to that understanding of who Jesus is and then we move on. The cross and the events of the cross and ultimately the Savior who died on the cross is the one that we stay close to every day. Paul said this about Jesus' motivation to go to the cross in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And this is the motivation. Who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to talk about what took place 2,000 years ago as Jesus suffered at the hands of the Jewish people, suffered at the hands of the Romans, endured a cruel and agonizing death. And you need to understand this morning, He did it for you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. And every moment of abuse, every second of agony, every drop of blood that was shed, every cry that He expelled was because He loved you. There's nothing that can change that. When we look at the Gospels, we see four similar but different pictures painted by the Gospel writers. And I love how God in, in His providence has had inspired these men to write about the events of our Savior, to give us those shades and angles and perspectives that any one of them would have missed as they wrote about how Jesus died. And so that's why I think we're going to look at this passage or look, look at the text of Scripture in the way that we are uh, to kind of put it all together so that we can see the greatness of the Savior's love. Now I want to give you a quick background in the events that lead us up to the crucifixion. In those final hours of Jesus' life, we know that it began in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. We call it Monday Thursday on the church calendar. It's the calendar, or it's the day where Jesus celebrated the Lord's table, which we will celebrate in a few moments. 
He and a few of his disciples went off into the garden where he prayed, knowing that the hour has come for him to be handed over. He cries out to the Father for deliverance. He, he asks the Father if it is the will of the Father that the cup of judgment would pass from him because in his humanity, he understood fully what it would mean for him to go to the cross. And yet it wasn't the Father's will. The Father's will was to crush the Son for our iniquities. And so Jesus, fully obedient to the Father's will, looks forward to those events. As He's in the garden praying, one of His disciples who betrayed Him, Judas, comes with some Jewish leaders and some of the Roman guards to come and seize and arrest Him. They take Jesus away and over the next few hours into the early morning of what we call Good Friday. And what's interesting about that phrase, Good Friday, it was originally in church history called God's Friday. And we had adapted it and called it Good Friday. I, I think we should just go back to God's Friday. It's His Friday that He accomplished the final work for our redemption. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders and put on trial as, as uh, a man who came and declared he was the Savior of the world, the Savior of the Jews, the King of Israel. They hand him off to Pilate, who's the Roman governor appointed by Rome over the area of Israel. The relationship between Israel and Rome was very tense. Often they were fighting with each other. There, there was going to be often these insurrections by people from Israel that were trying to overthrow Roman power. The Jews hated the, Rome, the, the Romans that were there. When it came time to pay taxes, the tax collectors would gather taxes for the, the empire of Rome and pad their own pockets. And we know that some of Jesus' disciples, like Matthew, was a tax collector. The Jews hated the Romans. But in this moment, the Jews conspire with Rome to kill Jesus. Jesus is handed off to Pilate. Pilate questions him. What do we know from the gospel accounts? Pilate says many times, and, and I would encourage you maybe this week to read the accounts of the, the crucifixion of Jesus for your own. But in the accounts, we read that Pilate says several times, this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And he wants to set him free. And the Jewish people press him. It was uh, one of uh, Pilate's... Um, kind of a, a, an actor of, of grace or a, a gift to the, the people that they would release a criminal during this time of year. And so we know that Jesus was crucified with two other men. And we also know, as the Gospel accounts tell us, that there was a third man that was considered to be crucified. His name is Barabbas. The text in the Gospels tell us that Barabbas was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was trying to overthrow the Romans. Pilate, thinking that the crowds would rather Jesus, this meek and mild king, 
he would finally be able to set him free, even though he was being pressed to crucify him, he would say, okay, now the crowds can decide, who would you rather me set free? And they chose the murderous insurrectionist and cried out for Barabbas' freedom. In fact, they said, as the Gospels account, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And the crowds that were being um, puffed up by the religious leaders, right? It, it was a mob mentality. The crowds are gathered. The religious leaders are kind of in the crowd, stirring up the crowds. Do you ever look at a, a video of a mob of people like that that have lost their minds doing things that you think, why on earth are they doing those things? And think, how do they get to that point? Well, the crowds are gathered. Remember, this is the Passover. Jews from all over the known world had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which was the moment in time when God delivered the nation of Israel from the, the nation of Egypt. In the Passover, they would celebrate and come together and praise God for His deliverance. The crowds are all there. And at the top of their lungs, to celebrate God's Passover, they are yelling, Crucify Him! The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Upon hearing these words, Pilate symbolically washes his hands. And being afraid of an insurrection... Because if Rome loses their handle on Israel, Rome would punish Pilate. He gives in. He gives the people what they want. And the Jewish people who call and cry out for this judgment to be brought upon Jesus accept responsibility for what will happen to this man. And they say, let his blood be on our hands and our children's hands. And now that Jesus is sentenced to die, there's one more thing that Rome does. Before criminals would be crucified, they would scourge them. And so they took Jesus and they tied him to a wooden post that was in the ground and they whip him with a whip that had bone and metal tied in its braids in fact the the act of scourging was so painful that many people died in scourging before they even got to a cross the flesh of jesus would have been ripped right off of him He would have lost a large amount of blood. And it's at this point, on Good Friday, between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m., that Jesus is led to the cross. So what I want to do for you this morning is read to you select passages that kind of put together a picture of what happened 
on God's Friday. In Matthew 27, verses 27 through 32, this is what we read about Jesus being led to the cross. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed in the service to bear his cross. In Luke 23, verses 28 through 31, we read this about Jesus on the way to the cross. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Then again in Matthew 27 we read, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Following the verdict and the scourging, a cohort of soldiers from Rome gathered around Jesus. Now a cohort, a Roman cohort, was upwards of 600 men. This isn't just a few guys. Up to 600 men gather around Jesus and they stripped Him. And they clothed Him in a robe that they had fashioned in a crown of thorns. And they pressed the crown of thorns upon His head. And they wrapped Him in this, crown, or in this robe And they gave him a reed as a scepter. They spat on him. And they took the reed and they beat him some more. It's at this point that Jesus begins his journey to Calvary. It was customary for the criminals to carry their own cross. And likely, They didn't carry the full cross. They would carry the cross beam. Regardless, this beam would have weighed 30 to 40 pounds. Jesus has just been scourged with the skin ripped right off of His back and sides, beaten with a reed. And along the way, He just doesn't have the strength to carry His own cross. And the Romans, knowing this, as they march with him and the other criminals to Golgotha, the place of the skull, they find a man, and, the, and, and Matthew tells us this man is named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a nation in, in North Africa. Simon was a Jewish man that was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He is pressed into service to carry the Lord's cross. 
What's interesting about this man, Simon, is that Mark mentions that he has two sons, Rufus and Alexander. And when you read Mark 16, or Romans 16.13, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, you read about a man named Rufus. And church history tells us that it's very well likely that this son of this man who carried the Lord's cross became a believer. Along the way to Golgotha, the, the crowds are crying out and there's, there's a group of women that are, that are crying. We read this in Luke's Gospel. And Jesus turns to them and He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me. What I find interesting in this is He still hasn't gone to the cross and died yet. And yet Jesus knows it's going to be okay. You don't need to weep for Me. What does Jesus say? You need to weep for yourselves. In fact, the crowds and yelling, crucify Him, crucify Him, had just said that this man's blood is on our hands. And Jesus announces a prophetic warning to these people. And He says, Behold, the days are coming when it will be better for you to not have children. It will be better for you To not be in a place where you have to take care of little ones. Why? Because you're going to cry out that the mountains would fall on us. You would rather that than what is going to happen to you. And what does happen? Well, about 40 years later, Rome has had enough. And in 70 AD, Rome comes in and utterly destroys Jerusalem raises it to the ground. And Jesus points out a very clear warning that there is something coming still for them. And don't cry for me because He knows He's victorious. We don't need to weep. Jesus doesn't need to look to the future with fear of the unknown. But He calls them to consider their own future. When they arrived at Golgotha, which is called the place of the skull, and commentators and theologians have speculated why it was called Golgotha, whether it was because that was the place where they crucified people and that's where they died and and they just attributed the skull to death, whether it was due to a natural formation of the rocks that were in the area on the hillside outside of Jerusalem that it looked like a skull. We're not quite sure. But they get to the place of the crucifixion and the soldiers give a drink mixed with gall or as we read, myrrh. It was a bitter drink. It was a mocking plea. It was another step in the humiliation of the person that was about to die. They would offer a drink. And remember, this is happening between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The sun will be at its highest. It's hot. It's 
an unbearable feeling. And they're thinking, here's a drink. And this drink mixed with gall or myrrh is disgustingly bitter. Jesus, after tasting it, is unwilling to drink it. In Luke 23, verses 33 through 43, we read, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And in John 19, John tells us that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, we read, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And in John 19, verses 25 through 27, we read, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now Luke indicates for us that Jesus was crucified with two other criminals. They were robbers. Likely insurrectionists that were guilty with Barabbas. There was one on the right, and there was one on the left. These men were likely guilty with Barabbas, In death, Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah 53 verse 12 points out. As the soldiers and crowds stand in mocking judgment, Jesus speaks grace 
in the midst of that mocking scene. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus communicates indescribable love for His creation. And He extends forgiveness to those who are tormenting Him. In this moment, Jesus is truly living out what He taught His disciples when He said, love your enemies. The charge that led to His crucifixion is insurrection. Insurrection means to overthrow a power. The charge was written in three languages. It was written on a sign and it was put above His head. And it was to be the the warning to all the crowds that would gather by to watch this event that if you try to do this, this is what's going to happen to you. The charge was written in Aramaic, which was the common language of the people. It was written in Latin, which was the official Roman language. And it was written in Greek, the international language of the empire. The charge was that he was the king of the Jews. John adds that the chief priests requested that the charge be amended. They ask Pilate to change it to, he said he was king of the Jews. What does Pilate say to them? It is what it is. In a prophetic way that Pilate doesn't even understand, he acknowledges that Jesus truly is the king of the Jews. He is the true king. In fact, this statement that was written over the cross became an early creed in the church to one day point us towards the full establishment of Jesus' kingdom. And while Jesus is being crucified, at His feet are Roman soldiers gambling for His clothes. It's like they're going to run off to the pawn shop after the crucifixion and try to get as much money as they can out of what's taking place. You need to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, all He had what was on His back. He didn't have anything else. And these soldiers are gathered at the foot of the cross Casting lots, gambling for what few possessions that he had. In fact, we know that one of the reasons they wanted to gamble and not tear his clothing up was he had a seamless tunic. It was the inner garment that was worn inside of the outer robe. And it was one piece. And that would have been the most expensive thing that he owned being a seamless garment. The one thing you need to understand 
the text infers it, it doesn't say it, is that Jesus and the other men are being crucified completely naked. It was another step of cruel humility as they are put on public display and tortured until they die. Listen, if Rome wanted to kill them instantly, they could have. Crucifixion was all about demoralizing a person for as long as they could until they died. Psalm 22 verse 18 is fulfilled. When we read, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. It's in the midst of all of this abuse. It's in the midst of the declaration, Father, forgive them. That Luke notes that one of the criminals that's being crucified with Jesus cries out in a mocking tone, asking Jesus, who is the King, to save Himself and to save us. He joins the echoes of the crowds that are passing by, looking up, crying out, you said you, you are this? Well, save yourself and show us that's who you are. The other criminal being crucified at this moment acknowledges and knows that Jesus is completely innocent. And hearing the words of grace that comes from Jesus' lips, Father, forgive them. He asks Jesus to remember Him in His kingdom. And on the cross, Jesus offers comfort to this dying criminal. Truly I say to you today, you shall be with Me in paradise. Today. Not in a thousand years. Not in an indeterminable amount of time. But today. This is huge. This man could do no good works. This man couldn't get baptized. This man couldn't join a local church and attend Sunday school and give money and do all the things that we do as Christians. This man's dying. There's no escape. And Jesus offers words of comfort to this man in his death. That because of his faith in him, he will be with Jesus in the coming kingdom. Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is another term for heaven. Jesus was immediately going to paradise. John indicates that while this is taking place, there were some women gathered at the foot of the cross. These, these women are noted 
Mary, his mother, the same Mary as a teenager whom the Holy Spirit visited, the same Mary that in a miraculous way gave birth to heaven's child, the same Mary that watched her son grow up knowing that he was special. The same Mary is now watching her son die as an innocent man. We also know that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, his mother's there. Salome is her name. We also know that Mary, the mother of James the Less, another disciple, is there. And we also know that Mary Magdalene, who became a follower of Jesus, is at the foot of the cross. And Jesus sees them with great clarity in his death. He's looking at the crowds and he notices these women. He sees his mother. And remember, Jesus is the firstborn son. It would have been up to him to take care of his mother. Why do we know that? Because we know that as Jesus began his adult ministry, his earthly father, Joseph, is nowhere to be found. We don't know what happens to Joseph. He, he likely died by the time Jesus began his public ministry. And it would have been Jesus' responsibility to care for his mother. And so he's dying on the cross. And as an act of grace, he cries out to the disciple whom he loves. And that's John. John's writing this, and he doesn't want to name himself, but he says, he referred to me as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says to me, as he's dying on the cross, woman, behold your son. And he turns to me and behold your mother. What is Jesus doing? In death, he's saying to John, take care of her. Provide for her. Bring her into your home. She likely had very little resources, very little income, if any at all. And so in an act of love, he provides perpetual care for her through the care of John. Then we come to his death. In Mark 15, verses 33 through 36, we read, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In John 19, verses 28 through 30, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. 
A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke 23, verse 46 says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 55 read, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. And in John 19, verses 31 through 37, we read, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture not a bone of him shall be broken and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierce when you put together the time markers that are given in the gospel accounts you realize that jesus hung on the cross for six hours on good friday For the final three hours, it is said that darkness filled the land. Darkness. It's high noon in the Middle East. Darkness filled the land. The sun would have been at its highest peak in the sky. Now this isn't a solar eclipse. This is a miraculous event. We know this because the Passover always took place on a full moon, but an eclipse requires a new moon. And this is a completely God-orchestrated creation crying out, creation acknowledging that the Creator is dying on the cross. This is a supernatural act of God. As the Son of God bears the weight of God's judgment for the sin of the world. It's near the end of his time on the cross. Jesus utters the despairing cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Directly quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1, 
Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, for the moments that he was on the cross, bearing the weight of not only the sins of the people that were gathered in Jerusalem, not only the sins of the people that happened before he ever came to the earth, but bearing our sin, all of our sin, humanity's sin is upon him. And as a result, God's judgment and wrath is directed towards him. In those moments on the cross, the Son and the Father are separated. Jesus is forsaken by the Father as he's dying on the cross for our sin. Listen, Jesus knew he had to die. But the fellowship that he had always enjoyed with the Father is broken as he suffers for you and me. The Aramaic word that is uttered from the cross from Psalm 22 verse 1, Eloi, Eloi, is a close word for the name Elijah. They hear Jesus say these words. And what do we read? Well, they say he's crying out to Elijah. Maybe Elijah will come down, the great prophet, and save him. Jesus states that he's thirsty. And so they give him a drink of sour wine, knowing the end is near. Jesus takes this drink. And in Psalm 69, verse 21, we read, They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And after taking the drink, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And then He declares, It is finished. And with that, Jesus breathes His last and gave up His Spirit. Listen, that phrase, gave up His Spirit, is critical to our understanding of what took place on the cross. Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave it up. He laid it down. He made the choice. He took our punishment. And even in His death, Jesus remains in full control. It's at this moment that Matthew tells us that some events take place. Creation responds to the Creator's death. There's an earthquake. Now that wasn't uncommon in the first century, but what is uncommon about this is the earth shook so hard that the tombs were opened up. Now it's interesting when you read what Matthew says that when the tombs were opened up, It wasn't until Jesus' resurrection that those tombs opened with those who were resurrected. 
because he is the first fruit of the resurrection. We also know that the veil of the temple was split right down the middle. And this veil was 60 feet tall by 30 feet wide. And this isn't some kind of thin garment. This was a heavy, thick fabric barrier that divided the most holy place from the holy place in the temple. And the temple was the place in the mind of the Jewish person where God lived. And when you follow the chronology of everything that was taking place, especially during the Passover, the the high priest would have been in the temple preparing to offer sacrifices. And the veil split right down the middle. The author of Hebrews borrows on this imagery when he tells us that Jesus inaugurated our ability to enter into the holy place. Church, the curtain is gone. God's people have direct access to the Father. It also means there's no more sacrifices that are needed. Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. At the foot of the cross, during all of the events of everything that he had witnessed, one of the Roman guards, one of the centurions is there that was in charge of crucifying these men. And upon hearing and seeing all that occurred, he could only offer one response. Surely, this man is the Son of God. Those that were gathered at the cross, Luke says, left beating their breasts. This was a sign of remorse and anguish. And finally, John includes some final details. Crucifixion took a long time. Some people hung on the cross for days. The Jews asked that they would hasten the process because the Sabbath was coming. They asked Pilate to break the legs of those crucified so that they could not hang there any longer. They needed to get the dead bodies down. Because it was a curse in the land if a dead body hung on a tree during the Sabbath. Pilate complies. And they break the legs of the criminals. But when they go to Jesus, they see that he already died. Psalm 34 verse 20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. To confirm his death, one of the guards takes a spear and puts it in the side of Jesus. And the text tells us that water and blood pour out. That's very likely that the spear went up through the side in an upward angle 
and cut his pericardial sac, which is the, the fluid around the heart. But they confirmed that Jesus had died. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 is fulfilled when we read, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So what does this mean for us? I hope it means for you that you know just how loved you are. And how that love motivated the Savior to go to the cross, to suffer on your behalf. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. He did nothing wrong. I pray we see the depth and length of the love of Christ as He's willing to suffer for our redemption. I also pray that if you don't know who Jesus is in this way, that you see the extent of what He was willing to go through for you. That His death was for you. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed. As we prepare for communion, what else can I say? What else could be said? Except that Paul explains that the table that we are going to celebrate in proclaims the Lord's death until He returns. So I pray that we can see the sacrifice of our Savior for our sins as we share in this table. Let's pray.